Hi, I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to the HQ, a CHA Learning and Healthcare Can podcast serial, where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading in the health system. Together, we'll try to unpack these topics and learn what actions are being taken to innovatively solve them today. We have spent a considerable part of the last two years in a heightened state of change. Indeed, surely one of the finalists for most used pandemic words must be pivot, and rightly so, as we have been doing just that on what seems like a near monthly basis as new information events come into focus. And if you're like me during the pandemic, time has become a very jumbled thing as we seemingly discuss and live in past, present, and future all at once. As we use information from the past to predict the future, so that we can make decisions and take action here in the present. And indeed, as we've heard most recently in our conversation with Andre Robichaud, the importance for workforce planning and forecasting has never been more critical than it is in healthcare here today. We're certainly not done with change as pivot gets replaced with new language and rewords like reimagine, rework and rebuild, or even gives way to words like hybrid which seems to me a lot like we're afraid or uncertain what change will bring or what to even call it. So we're keeping our options open by having one foot in the past and future at the same time. There is no doubt, however, that now is indeed the time to reimagine our healthcare system, not only because of the innovations that have come, but because our current HHR crisis demands that we learn from the past and find new solutions to age old problems. So in considering the future of our health workforce, what do we as leaders need to look at or focus on? If change is inevitable, how do we support the system and people in it to adapt, adjust, and become prepared for the future health system, whatever that might be? To explore this topic, I'm very pleased to be joined by Jacqueline Purr, Executive Director of Learning, Research, and Innovation at Fraser Health in BC. Jacqueline's current role sees her leading the vision, developing the strategy, and ensuring the planning, coordination, integration, operation, and evaluation of Fraser Health's learning, research, and innovation program, including the co-creation with Simon Fraser University and the First Nations Health Authority of a new medical school. She ensures efforts are focused on capitalizing and expanding on post-COVID-19 opportunities, aligning to the future of work, and innovative approaches to virtual health programs, research, and learning. A key strategy in this role is ensuring a strong focus on health human resource planning and innovation, and the ways to retain our highly valuable and sought after clinical workforce across the organization. So hi, Jacqueline, and welcome to the HQ. Hi, Dale. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation. It's nice to see you again. So I know there's much more I could say about you and your career. Um, So maybe before we start talking about the future, perhaps we could start with your own past and how it prepared you for your present role. Yeah, I I probably have not had the traditional nurse leader trajectory in my career. I've I've bounced around between clinical and and the corporate side of, of the organizations. I think most recently, my experience as the chief nursing and allied health officer here at Fraser Health, um, started about six years ago when I joined Fraser. 
and really looking at how are we supporting um, our staff, the learning that our, our clinicians are needing as they exit their baccalaureate programs. So, you know, when we speak about nursing and allied mm-hmm. health, they exit those programs and suddenly they're thrust into the into the real life world. And it's a struggle. That transition is difficult for a lot of our clinicians. So we were doing a lot of work within the portfolio around how do we support some of the uh, the mentorship, the uh novice to expert transition that happens. And then we were, ran into this little thing called COVID-19 and, and a two-year <laughs> pandemic where we saw, as I think uh, past um, co-hosts or past uh, folks you've had on the podcast have, have highlighted, we saw a workforce that was already getting stretched very thin. And now we were coupled on with um, all of COVID and our resiliency and our ability to continue to manage in ambiguity, high levels of uncertainty and anxiety was putting a lot of pressure on our teams. And part of what I needed to do was figure out how do we ensure that we've got the workforce that is going to be able to support uh, whatever the pandemic is going to bring because we didn't know. And, and that uh, really started a lot of different conversations, uh, not only in Fraser Health, but I think you know, in British Columbia, but across the country and nationally, what is our health workforce needing? What is it going to look like? And now that we are in this HHR crisis that has been exacerbated by COVID, what are we thinking that we're going to need to do differently? And, and you know, as the chief nurse, that was the, a lot of the conversations we were having is who do we have in our workforce? How do we look at what is it they're doing, their scope, our, our care and staffing models, what needs to change and how do we do that really nimbly and agile uh, in an agile way? Because we don't have we don't have the luxury of taking three or four years to rewrite a curriculum. But, you know, we needed to make changes on the fly. And so I think that really set me up going forward with this portfolio that I have now is what are the things that we need to be looking at for the future? What is the impact on our people? And what are the expectations our people and our patients have around healthcare service and delivery going forward? Yeah, I mean, I look at your title, and it definitely seems to be the answer to the, you know, the, the or the way forward in terms of trying to to get into this topic. So, um, I mean, where do we want to start the conversation? I mean, what do you think we need to capitalize on out of the pandemic in terms of how do we go forward from here? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I, you know, I think the biggest one is, is a recognition that, you know, we need to change. Um, we need to we need to recognize that a, a lot of our weaknesses in the system were highlighted in the pandemic. And we've had to, you know, we've had to, to really take stock of that. You know, how fast are we able, like I said before, how, how fast are we able to train new clinicians? How are we supporting them to a, attain these competencies uh, that used to take, you know, um, a year or two of, of extra education and training that now we're saying in the next three weeks, you've got to be ready to move into a new area of practice. Um, I think we have to, as leaders, accept that we're at the point of no return in this global HHR crisis. We have known this has been coming for years. And I've been in healthcare for for 30 plus years, not quite as long as, as Andre, but you know, we've known this day has been coming for a very long time. And it's been one of those things where, you know, tomorrow, tomorrow, and now tomorrow is here. Uh, I think, you know, we've got to, um, we have to show up differently in how we talk about solutions and how we talk about ideas um, for transformational change. And we have to have that open and respectful dialogue with a lot of our different partners, right? It's our labor unions, it's our regulators, it's academia, uh, it's our, our partners uh, in our communities. You know, it's not just health anymore. It's a lot of other not-for-profit organizations, for-profit organizations. 
And, you know, the biggest voice and, and the partner we have to work alongside is our patients. Um, you know, that their voice um, is going to shape what we're looking at for the future. And now more than ever before, we have to have that authentic and meaningful dialogue with them as we go forward. Yeah, it has to serve them. Certainly, they have to see themselves in the system at the end. So, so I mean, you're talking about the, some of the different ideas and different approaches that you're considering. So where do we start? I mean, what are you, or where are you starting um, at Fraser Health? Yeah, I think the first thing is the mindset, right? What got us here is not going to get us there. So like I said before, you know, we, we have to be much more curious. We have to, we have to disrupt the system. And I think that's the exciting part of my portfolio. And, I, and I'm not talking big D, bold disruption, but even um, little D disruption of, of challenging the status quo, asking different questions. You know, we are a very risk averse system. And, and we, I think we have to challenge that a little bit. We have to be a little bit more open to taking chances and not fearing failure with the things that we try. Um, you know, we still need to be thoughtful. We still need to be intentional. We absolutely need to measure and evaluate, but much more nimbly, um, you know, and much more um, agile, much more um, creatively and innovatively than we ever have before. And I think we need to socialize, you know, the, the, the future of what the health system and what the healthcare teams are going to look like. You know, when you talk about health and folks get excited and they think, oh, AI and machine learning and, mm -hmm. and you, know, you get this vision of, 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 a, of a robot, you know, that is going to come and take your temperature or do a dressing change or diagnose your, your cancer. Um, there will be aspects, but it's not going to be health is taken over by machines. So, but we do have to educate not only our providers, but our public as well around what are, what is um, technology going to bring in the future? What will care service uh, look like? And what role will technology play in our care models and service design? So um, I, I think some of those conversations need to happen. Um, we have to understand what fears are out there and what assumptions are out there. Um, because I think what we think we can do, we can't. And what we think we can't do, other industries have been doing for a long time. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we often look to you know, <clears throat> banking or other kinds of systems in terms of how they use information and, and wonder why we can't do more of that in healthcare. But I mean, what do you think is the future in terms of that? And, and coming back to those fears, what is the fear in, in terms of considering it or adopting it? Or, or why haven't we done it before? Well, I think it, it comes in on different areas, right? I think there's um, healthcare is a very uh, relational system, right? We, we, uh, we, we form relationships with our patients and with providers. Uh, we are, I think, an industry that is probably one of the most trusted, right? You know, as a nurse, you will tell me things you would never tell your family um, or certainly wouldn't tell them right away. Um, as a nurse, I get to experience your greatest joys and your greatest tragedies as a patient. Uh, and I'm very privileged to hold that. But it's also, you know, frightening for me to think that I might lose some of that ability to be at your side because technology is going to um, augment roles that I currently hold. Um, some of it is great, you know, that repetitive, mundane, routine um, mm -hmm. tasks. So, you know, for a nurse, you know, having bedside devices that capture all of your vital signs and, and seamlessly integrate that into an electronic record so I don't have to stand with a pencil and paper and stand at the machine and jot it all down, that, that's easy. But when it comes to, um, you know, things like predictive analytics or where we might be, you know, looking at diagnosing 
through AI, you know, are patients comfortable with that? Do they know that this diagnosis wasn't made by their orthopedic specialist, but was actually made through um, uh, machine learning that has gone through and combed through all kinds of, of data about you and has said, this is likely what Dale is, is struggling with or suffers from, and here's the treatment plan. So there, it's, it's a wide spectrum that we're going to have to be looking at and talking about. So, yeah, what I'm hearing is trust is a big part of it. And, and underneath that is the perhaps a, there's a sense of fear in terms of the relationships, or I guess that may be threatened or jeopardized by some of these changes. Yeah. And I think, you know, our, our, our work is going to change as well, right? Like the jobs we have today will look different in three, five, 10 years um, as a nurse. There may be jobs in our system now that will be here in five, 10, 15 years. And then that's where I say, you know, we, we have to start really opening up the dialogue around those conversations, because if, if we're going to say that, um, you know, X profession isn't going to be needed in the future because technology is going to be able to do most of that work and what's left over that human aspect can be reconfigured in some way or scope expansions might be able to take on some of that work. Those roles aren't going to be there while we're still graduating those folks. We still have a lot of those individuals that are now in their 30s and 40s who aren't retiring for another 20, 25 years. So mm-hmm. what is the plan for them, right? How are we, they are a valuable asset to our workforce. So how do we help support them to shift and transition into that future of, of the system and the work that's going to be needed? And we need to have, we haven't thought about that um, to the extent that I think we need to. Uh, and, and that's concerning in a way when I look at, um, you know, the who is saying we're going to be short 18 million, you know, healthcare workers, like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's 2022. In another eight years, we are in big, big trouble. And it takes four years to graduate a nurse, you know, eight to 10 years to graduate a physician, six to seven years to graduate a nurse practitioner. You know, what are we going to do, right? We don't have that luxury of of waiting. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I guess as part of what you're describing is like uh, considering like the manufacturing industry, what it went through 20 years ago or something, right? was different kinds of robots and things came on to assembly lines and things like that. And the people were concerned that they were going to lose their jobs, but it was important to productivity and um, even standardization of, 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 you know, the production itself. Do you think that your workforce, you know, the people that you work with, your colleagues appreciate that this is, I guess, a critical way for healthcare to sort of, I guess, Again, coming back to that word pivot, I guess, into this new future and, and perhaps, you know, maybe survive is the wrong word, but certainly to con- to get out of this crisis. Yeah, that's another good question. Yes and no. I think everybody realizes that we're in a, in a HHR crisis and things have to change, but we're we're applying the same policies and the same roadmaps that we've used in the past. So, you know, in British Columbia, we, we are um, expanding our healthcare seats in our academic institutions. There's going to be X number more of nursing seats and physiotherapy. But just because you build it doesn't mean the people are going to come, right? So, you know, when we talk about here in Fraser, we talk about the three things that are really critical around HHR. It's the recruitment, the retaining, and the retention is, is significant. And, you know, we need to start looking at what are the what are the things we need to do to retain the people we have? How do we retrain 
the folks that either don't want, so eMERGE nurses don't want to be in the emergency department anymore. They're burnt out. Well, we don't want to lose them in the system. What is mm-hmm. it that we can do to keep them in the system? Um, you know, what are the, how will technology uh, step into some of the work that they do and take off some of the stuff that, you know, the, the routine, the mundane, the things that are automatable and putting back that cognitive aspect of um, critical thinking, that specialized body of knowledge that nurses, physicians, allied health providers have, putting that in place. Um, and then I think there's, you know, the other opportunity for us, I, I think, is really to kind of look at, you know, you mentioned the automotive industry, the conversations they had, I think, you know, 20, 30 years ago with their labor unions around, you know, we're, we're getting automated. Our plants aren't going to need the people. Those, I think, are the conversations we need to be having with our labor unions as well. It's like, how do we how do we support all of these workers and how do we make our workplaces attractive that we, again, want to bring people in, right? So yeah. you can expand the seats, but if you can't bring them in, why are we bringing them in? What is it in the workplace that is is not suitable? And we've got to change that around. Like I say, we've got to have those disruptive conversations. Do we change? The academic models haven't changed, you know, for physicians in like 100 years, for nursing close to the same. Um, you know, we have to, I think, look at how do we train people? Um, how do we provide education? What do preceptorships, residencies, fellowships look like? And what are the learning opportunities that these clinicians need? And, and, and I think fundamentally, you know, our whole system, does our system need a shakeup? I would argue, yes. I think, you know, the primary care, there's so much work we can do in that space, but it's a lot of difficult conversations around legislation, uh, billing, uh, regulation, uh, scope of practice. Um, but I think those conversations need to happen. And it has to happen with academia as well, right? They're, they're going to need to to change accreditation of health systems. Um, schools and faculty will also need to be looked at. Yeah, I, I guess the thing that's different from the manufacturing, the automotive industry, as you're talking is, you know, the, the changes, I guess, with threatening layoffs and people sort of, you know, ability to make ends meet. I don't think that's what healthcare is contemplating uh, is, you know, getting rid of people. It's a lack of people and it's how to maybe not stretch people further, but certainly to utilize them in conjunction with systems and um, uh, computers and AI and, and other kinds of technological advancements to sort of expand the services that we provide through our health system. Well, and help them, right? You know, like I said, it, yeah, we're not, we're never going to be in a part where we're laying off staff. But I think, you know, how do we support, and labor unions are going to be, you know, a critical partner in this. How do we support um, their members, our staff, our colleagues in that time of change and ambiguity? You know, I, you know, did you grow up your whole life wanting to be a, a radiology technician or a radiologist? Uh, and you, or you've been doing it for five or six years and now, and we're seeing that change already. So how are, how are we helping them? Like what, what is it that you need in terms of upskilling? What are your career goals? What are the supports? What is it that you are worried about when we say your job is changing? What do they hear? You don't need me anymore. I'm not valued. That's not the message that, that needs to be sent. And that's why I think it's so important that we're working hand in hand with our unions to, to be able to frame and support and continually message and help transition when those workforces are going to change how are we supporting that to be successful Uh, most importantly on that provider 
and then for the patients that are in their care, right, that they're interacting with every day. Uh, so have you started those conversations already? We haven't uh, that I know of. I mean, I think, you know, right now, I think the resiliency is quite low. I think people are just, mm-hmm. just you know, the scuba gear that we've been wearing for the last two years isn't even helping anymore. We're getting into deep dive suits now. Um, the resiliency is not there. And I think we're also, at least in British Columbia, we're moving into um, a collective bargaining cycle. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of things that are, that we knew going into collective bargaining from the last round that would come up this year. But I think, like I said before, the pandemic highlighted a lot of opportunities for us to really look at workplaces and and how we do the work that we do. And I think that's going to be a big focus and rightly so, you know, that their attention is turned to that right now. But I think going forward, once that's done, that's the conversations we we need to start having. And, And, you know, you know, those frameworks around our HHR planning, you know, what is it looking like? 10, 15 years out? What happens if we were to add technology to this particular sector? What happens if we were to change the education model in that particular sector? What happens when? Uh, Those kind of scenario modeling we need to start doing and and having all of those folks at the table to talk about what are the impacts, what are the challenges, and what are the opportunities that are in front of us that that we can capitalize on? So, uh, maybe talk to me a little bit about your planning process, I guess, going forward in, in terms of this and, um, you know, what are you considering and, and, and more specifically, I guess, what are you planning for today um, in, in terms of setting things up for tomorrow? Well, I think there's like a lot of different levels. So, I mean, certainly nationally, you know, healthcare can where you guys are looking at the at a lot of different, you know, four different pillars and HHR is certainly one of them. And across the country, everybody is looking at that. Um, certainly here in Fraser Health and in, in the province of BC, we are really looking at our partnerships with our post-secondaries, mm-hmm. uh, so looking at what are the, how, how are we supporting, um, so for nursing, for example, how are we supporting nurses to enter into practice? So we're looking at um, internationally educated nurses. What are the barriers that they face to get licensure uh, here in Canada and in British Columbia? And what can we do about that? We are looking at LPN to let licensed practical nursing to registered nursing bridging programs. Mm-hmm. How are we supporting what that looks like? Uh, what are the uh, opportunities we have um, with team-based care so that actually people are starting to have a stronger understanding of what is the scope of practice of the person they're sitting next to every day in the care team? We are looking at uh, in-house uh, career development and clinical laddering. So we had to do a lot of that during the pandemic. So really expanding on some of that so that we have, we're not um, strictly bound to the academic semester intake of September to April. Yeah. But we, we are able to augment that with, um, you know, going through the summer um, weekends, evenings, shorter cycles, working with um, um, our academic partners to move away from placement of nursing and allied and, and, and hopefully soon physicians always in an acute system, but really looking at what are the learning outcomes that they need and where are there other opportunities, i.e. primary care, that they can be learning uh, and consolidating skills, building their body of knowledge, recognizing that I, I think personally a big shift in the years to come is going to be away from this specialist acute in hospital, work you up, mm-hmm. you out somebody new, to really focusing on more fulsome uh, primary care, and you you dip in and out of acute when you need to. But if you're a, a healthy individual with 
a chronic disease, you, you won't ever see the inside of a hospital for any kind of testing or any kind of specialist follow-up because a lot of that is, is rules-based medicine now. You know, we, nurse practitioners are taking a lot of this on. Nurses are taking a lot of it on. Advanced physiotherapy can take a lot of that on. So I think there's going to be some significant shifts. And, and we're having those conversations to see what is possible out there. And um, scope of practice will be a big one um, and has been for us um, leveraging out of that pandemic. Certainly with our licensed practical nurses, we're really working hard there. And is that something that you're doing, I guess, within your, like within Fraser Health yourselves, or is that happening in the post-secondary institutions in terms of pre- preparing them or both? Both. We're, we're uh, you know, I think, you know, sometimes we will come out ahead with an idea and approach the post-secondaries. Uh, and oftentimes they will come to us with an idea and, and we will work with them. So it's, we've been very fortunate. Um, our post-secondary partners are fantastic and there's nothing that we say to them that they say no to. Uh, you know, I have to say our, our unions have been very um, supportive as well when we brought them in, certainly a little bit more with uh, the BC Nurses Union. But, you know, I, again, I think there's that recognition that we, we have to do things differently and, and people want to come to the table with ideas. And uh, part of that, some of us are going to move faster towards that than others. And I think that's a big, big piece of where I was saying we need to be socializing. What does that future look like? And it's not about you know, robots and um, a little black box on a desk speaking to you. That human aspect of care is always going to be there. We're always going to need a nurse. We're always going to need a physician, a respiratory therapist, a healthcare mm-hmm. aide. We're always going to need those roles. But how they show up in the workplace may be different, um, will be different in the future. So how do you get somebody curious about that conversation or engage in it in a meaningful way with you? It comes out from different perspectives. I think, you know, certainly the the innovation side, um, you know, health authorities are not immune to uh, recognizing that there's, we have to do work differently. And there's a lot of things that are happening out in, in um, different sectors around innovation that we can be learning from. And, um, you know, we're implementing a, an electronic medical record uh, um, in Fraser Health. And there's a lot of opportunities just around app integration, uh, mm-hmm. patient monitoring, and that gets people excited. It gets patients excited because they don't have to come into hospital anymore. They can actually be cared for in the home, um, which is where they want to be. So there, so there's that natural excitement. I think that comes with opportunities that were realized from the pandemic and, and leveraging all of that. And I think, you know, there's, there's people are talking now about how the system needs to look different and people are reaching out to one another more, I think, in different ways and asking different questions. And I think that's the exciting part for, for us is, you know, we're, we are moving forward, I think, in BC with looking outside of our own sector and kind of seeing what are other people doing? Where is mm-hmm. their opportunity? Um, and we're not the only ones that, you know, I'm, I'm confident every province is doing that. But, you know, there's there's a lot of learning we can we can have from the NHS, from Australia, New Zealand, from the U.S. and vice versa. I mean, Canada has done some amazing things, too, and people are reaching in. So I, I think that, you know, we're, we've got that burning platform now where people are asking and because we recognize we have to be different and we have to show up different and just cultivating that conversation. Right. It's it's always about what are the opportunities? Who do we see? Um, and again, you know. I think our big thing in Fraser is we want to make sure we've got that patient voice around the table um, as we're doing this. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the things I guess I'm sort of struck by are in my own contemplation of, of how do how do we innovate in some respects, and maybe you can comment on this a bit more, um, 
is the role of diversity in terms of our conversations. Like if you want to be different, right, we can't bring the same people around the table all the time and expect to find a different answer. So, and I think your your example of bringing patients to the table as part of that is perhaps one way to achieve that. But maybe in your role in terms of innovation in your portfolio, what other ways do you get people to think differently or to engage in that? And that's a great question. I think, you know, the, the diversity bit is, 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 is quite broad to, you know, uh, one with virtual care. One of the things we're looking at now is, uh, you know, are we really being um, intentional when we're sourcing potential solutions for virtual care that meet um, that people with disabilities? So, you know, are we actually reaching out to not just the folks that are in rural, um, rural Fraser Health region, Mm-hmm. But are we actually looking at uh, hearing impaired uh, folks that are blind? Like, do these solutions help address some of those aspects? Translation services, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So I think that's important. Um, one of the things we're doing here as well is uh, we're holding some design sprints and we're, we're bringing uh, patients together with um, third-party vendors, technology companies, and the actual users of some of the systems we're looking to redesign and bring them all together. And I think that's probably the first time, at least in where I've seen it, uh, where we actually are bringing the technology, the user and the patient that are not from within the health system. The only people that are from within the health system are our are, are staff. Our patients try to access in, the tech vendors don't work for us. So we're all coming together and we're gonna have uh, conversations for, for, for a few days about what is it that we're looking to redesign and what aspects and perspectives do people bring? What are the values they hold about the technology, about the service service provision? And I think that's really exciting because, you know, you start getting groups like that that come together. That starts to fan out and spread out um, around engagement um, and that when you look at the uh, spectrum of public participation, traditionally we've always just done an inform, right? Tell us what Mm -hmm. you think. We'll take that back and we'll maybe, maybe not do something with it. Um, But we really need to get to the point where we're doing a lot more collaborating and and ideally empowering patients to drive the system um, needs for what they want and what this, how the system provides that. Yeah. And what I'm hearing from you is to be intentional about it, I guess, in terms of creating those spaces for people to collaborate. Um, And uh, yeah, I I mean, what is, I guess, what have you seen or heard? have Have you done it yet so far or? No, we're doing it at the end of April, beginning of May, which is exciting. But we, we have done, you know, we do do patient engagement. Um, you know, all health authorities do. Mm-hmm. You know, I think certainly, you know, we've got some great stellar examples across across Canada of, of where you, how to do patient engagement right. Um, and we all do it. But I think this is one of the first, this will be the first time that I've actually seen kind of these three groups come together. Um it's like a partnership almost then in that respect. That's right. right. So, yeah. Which is, I'm really excited. I have no idea what it's going to bring, uh, but I'm really excited about it because I think this could be a real stepping off point um, when patients start under, understanding what is possible mm-hmm. and then pushing us as health to say, we want this. You guys need to figure out a way to make that happen. This is our expectation. And they did that during COVID. Right. They said, we're not you're not letting us come in to see physicians. I still need to see my physician or my nurse practitioner or whomever, uh, you know, find a way to get that to me. And we, we cobbled things together with Zoom and Teams. Uh, but even that's evolving as we speak today. Right. That technology and that ability to connect 
uh, with our providers is 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 changing. So it's it's going to happen. And I think the, that's the exciting part is not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow yeah. gets me out of bed today. Yeah, well, I think it's it's recognizing also that patients aren't you know just lay people who don't know anything, um, right? They are leaders in their own rights and their day jobs and their other parts of their lives. They can be entrepreneurs or leaders or you know inventors, right? And so they bring that knowledge and experience, I think, to the table in a diverse industry, and it helps inform us, I guess, to stimulate those sort of thoughts. Um, and I'm also, I guess, thinking of, like. Partly what you're doing, if, if I'm maybe, I, I, well, let me know if you, if it's accurate, but, but it's a, again, being intentional in terms of that research and development sort of side of things. And I suspect that a lot of healthcare has lost that over the years of leaning out our systems and becoming cost conscious, um, right? The, the, and even to your discussion at the very outset about being risk averse, right? Taking chances and, you know, in a true R and D environment, right? You, you try things, you fail. Um, but it's the one, you know, that you do succeed at that sort of leads you forward. So is there an element to what you're doing here in that, that sort of sits with that or what do you think? Oh, for sure. You know, I, I think one of the big things that we're, we're having to, it's kind of a leftover from my old role, but it, it's, you know, the redesign of, of care teams and care models and staffing. And, you know, we're, we're doing things that um, we're generating that new evidence, that new knowledge um, in, in an industry where everyone will say, well, what we need to do needs to be evidence-based and we need to know it's safe for patients. But we're doing that because somebody actually stepped out of the box and tried something, contributed to new knowledge. We've refined it, we've practiced it, and now it's evidence-based. So we need to be stepping out a lot more into that space of try something, right? Try and be okay to fail. Obviously, we still need to have all of the parameters in, but that that rigor around uh, evaluation of what we're doing and, and linking it to research. I think that's been a gap. I would agree with you. And that's certainly something that what I really like about this blend of the portfolio that I have is everything I do, you know, I've got the research team who's sitting right there saying, yes, and Mm -hmm. And yes, and we'll do this. And yes, and we'll measure that way. And yes, and here are people who can partner and yes, and here's the literature we already know. So it's just fantastic, right? I I think I'm, I'm truly, truly blessed to have such a great portfolio. Um, we cannot do this without the rigor behind it. And, and no one would want to. We would never put patients at risk in, in any way. Uh, but there are ways we can approach it um, and take a little bit more risk and put all those parameters around. And, you know, and when you ask patients, patients have to consent to try a new procedure. They mm-hmm. have to consent to be uh, part of a clinical trial. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I have, my experience hasn't been where patients say, absolutely not. It might make me it's faster, it's more effective, um, the prosthetic will last longer. No, I don't want to try that. A lot of people will say, yes, you know, I want to be part of this. Um, and I th- that, that's how we need to move forward, right? It's, uh, and, and with care models, it's the same thing. We, we've always looked at, I think, uh, medication technology. Now we're getting into some of the, 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 the more gray space. Um, you know, do you need to have a, is, is critical care nursing a one-to-one primary model or are there ways that we can change that if so in what areas is it effective how do we ensure patient safety how do we ensure good communication among the providers like all of that has to be worked out and somebody has to step out and try it so 
I think that's where, where a lot of us are at, especially in the bigger organizations where we've got that ability to kind of have our own little mini control groups between these tertiary quaternary centers and our community hospitals. Where is that space that we can make some of these changes? Yeah, and it's a it's an uncomfortable space. I mean, I think many many managers and leaders have probably seen this, but you know, where uh, you know staff have going, been going through a crisis or a need of some res- respect, right? Um, and the opportunity to sort of to find your way through that means doing something different. Um, and there's a reluctance to sort of engage in that because of the what if sort of possibilities, but. Um, but I, I do think you're definitely moving in the right track. So maybe as we sort of come to a close in terms of our, our conversation here today, just another question and sort of to bring this all back together and and back to the, your, the intro of you at the beginning. How does this all come together in terms of your work, in terms of developing that the new medical school at Simon Fraser and your partnership in that? How do you bring all these learnings and, and the, the innovations and ideas that you have in terms of building something new? Well, what's really exciting about this is the, um, the, the medical school was, um, was framed as being um, interdisciplinary, um, team-based care, primary care, and really having that Indigenous um, focus and lens on it. And uh, UBC School of Medicine is the only faculty of medicine in the province. Uh, Here in Ontario, you have a lot of different medical schools. And there's um, the Northern Ontario School of Medicine has done a similar approach. Uh, Ryerson is doing something um, similar. Mm -hmm. And I think what's really exciting for me is, you know, when we're we're sitting with um, First Nations Health Authority uh, members and hearing about their experiences, the experiences of their communities, um, and the opportunities they they want to put forward to share those indigenous ways of knowing and well being and helping you know the Western practitioner is so exciting, um, you know. And how do we build that in? So when we're looking at curriculum design, and we're not there yet, this is still very early stages. But when it gets down into the curriculum design, you know, I think the opportunity for us to be really innovative and creative is right there. And we're going to be um, encouraged to do that because of the way this was framed, uh, the way that this is not just, you know, lift, shift and repeat, um, but really look to transform medical education from this lens and, and, and this focus uh, it, which is different because right now we train, I think physicians very much um, autonomous, specialty provider, this is going to look a lot different. Um, and the innovation that we have there is to, is to try something new to um, kind of blend the, the, the old with the new, with the Western, with the traditional ways of healing um, and inviting just some of those um, that have lived in those two worlds, you know, those that identify as Indigenous, that have sought care in the Western system and that have sought care you know, in their communities through their elders um, and their and their communities, how how does that look like? How does it play out? And then for us as a as a health authority, how do we support um, having some of those placements? And um, how do we educate our current providers so that they're able to support those students in these new ways of thinking? And I think that's really exciting when we when we start looking at it. And um, you know, we we've been very fortunate that we have um, quite a we've got a hundred and 
40 some odd nurse practitioners now here in Fraser Health and, and the majority of them practice in primary care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've got great relationships with our primary care physicians, um, you know, and so having them also have input into what is that placement, that mentorship, that training going to look like um, is going to be important. And the, the medical school, it might not even be a bricks and mortar school. Like what if it's virtual? Mm-hmm. How is that going to look? How are we going to set up our own capital developments Um, our expansions or any new builds to create that learning environment for these medical student learners. So, you know, um, are they going to be having classes actually in the hospital or in a clinic? Uh, Is it going to be done virtually? What role will simulation play and to what level? Like, will it be a low fidelity sim or high fidelity where we're actually getting the, the um, virtual reality goggles on and they're learning the, the, how, how the, the human body and, and where muscles attach and where, where, all, where all the vasculature is. And it's not on a PowerPoint and it's not in a textbook, but it's in a holographic image and they're actually able to, to move around and cut, slice and dice. I, I think it's going to be fantastic. It, it will be very different going forward. And, and um, I think that's the, that's the neat part about um, bringing innovation into it is that we can ask different questions and look for different uh, results and how are we going to get there, right? Just have that creativity bent to it. Uh, it's exciting. And then um, it and comes back even to, I think, some of the, my remarks at the beginning in terms of the past, present, and future being brought together at once in terms of, you know, you, being holistic in terms of learning from all, you know, parts of our uh, our knowledge base, inc- including the traditional knowledge as you've described, and and um, but also preparing not just, I guess, physicians and for our current system, but for our future system that you would certainly be aspiring to um, and utilizing our technology to sort of facilitate that. So, yeah. And, and, you know, and as, you know, for, for leaders that are coming into this, this new environment, right. So we have, you know, for, for me, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be looking at retiring before I see probably a lot of this, but, you know, new leaders that are coming into the health system, you know, how are we preparing them, I think, is, is another another bit, right? And, um, you know, that's what we're trying to look to do uh, as well is when we think about, you know, it's not just the the clinical education that folks are needing, but it's it's how do you lead a health system in mm-hmm. a different future? Um, you know, what, what are the skill sets that these leaders are going to need? What are the attributes um, of, of the people that they're going to be working with that they need to understand, the system in which they're working that they need to understand? And so I think that's, you know, you know, the, the innovation and the research side, the learning side of the portfolio, you know, with this SFU med school, but without it is just as important, right? How are we setting up, you know, clinicians to be those preceptors and mentors? How are we setting clinicians up to be taking leadership roles and what does that look like and what are the skills that they're going to need? Um, and part of those is, and part of that is the work that my portfolio is also uh, doing is, is how, how do we actually prepare these folks to not only transition in their clinical role, but that understanding of what are the leadership um, capabilities that those roles hold and, and have the ability to influence going forward. Yeah, I, I, in, certainly in other work that we've done, I, mean, I know there's been discussion about the, the hidden culture, right, in, in medicine. Um, and so you, even if you were to be successful in everything that you aspire to um, in developing these future physicians and leaders and you bring them into the current system as it's currently defined, um, there will be uh, a conflict of, of ideas, let's just say. 
Absolutely. And, you know, there's a conflict of ideas. There's a, um, you know, just the, just that, you know, for me, you know, I, I remember when licensed practical nurses came into the system and as a registered nurse, you know, that was a threat to my whole way of being and practicing in my identity. Uh, we're going to see a lot more of that as, as roles shift, as scopes of practice expand. So how are we, how are we supporting our teams with that as leaders? How are we supporting uh, leaders to call out some of that hidden culture, as you say, right? Um, how, how do we, how do we um, manage and how do we have the ability to recognize our own blind spots in mm-hmm. some of this and what supports do we have to move away from that? And I think, you know, the, all of the work that's happened around truth and reconciliation has really made, um, really made us stop and think, you know, do we question our blind spots? Do we question what our assumptions are and what we think we know and what we maybe don't know? And having the courage to be vulnerable to say, this is a space I'm not comfortable in, or I don't know about whatever it happens to be, you know, and and getting that support to help grow and learn in that way. And and I think that's part of what we need to be doing with our future leaders is it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to not, nobody expects you to know everything. Um, But the last two years in the pandemic, right, you you made decisions and you had to do it really quickly. And you didn't, there was no support real at the end of the day, right? It was because everything changed so much. So yeah, I think, you know, the, that aspect will be another big piece where, you know, maybe innovation plays a space in that. Um, I certainly think we've got a lot of opportunity around researching through COVID and COVID leadership and what that took, what, what leaders learned from that, the impact for leaders. And what, what does that say for future leaders that saw us managing in this, in this time what kind of perception or impact has that left with them? And what do we need to do to encourage them to, to go into leadership or what do we need to hear from them around the supports they need um, to step into that role in the future? Yeah, I, I think it's, we pro- well, I think many of us probably fall into that, the risky camp of sort of thinking that innovation often is synonymous with technology, but, but it is, it isn't, it can be about our, I guess, the way we think, the way we feel, the way we interact with each other as well, um, and that certainly inform our own leadership journey in this space. So, yeah, I think it has to. You know, it's um, technology is the easy thing to point at. I think the tougher work to do um, in innovation is 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 the people side of it, mm-hmm. right? And and that's um, you know, technology is not the silver bullet. Just like innovation is not the silver bullet, it's it's a lot of different parts that have to come together. A lot of, like I said before, a lot of um, our ability to feel vulnerable, to raise some of the challenges, to be a bit of a disruptor and not worry about, um, you know, being taken out of the space, you know, don't, don't want to hear about that. Those are the voices that have to be in the room going forward. Um, and I think that's, that, that, that's the opportunity that's in front of us is to, to, like you said earlier, not continue to bring the same people around the table, but to, to continue to bring those and others with differing perspectives, different experience um, around the table to start saying, what if, and um, what are the opportunities? Because I don't think we, like I said, we, what got us today, here today isn't going to get us where we need to go. And that different thinking, we all need to show up differently, but we can't do that if we're all standing around with the same group of people we always stand around with. We have to, to have different voices. 
Yeah. And I think the, the patients certainly are an a critical part of that in terms of helping to ground us in terms of what we're doing. Anytime I've been around a table with uh, a patient or a person with lived experience, having sharing their, their journey, it certainly reminds us about what we're doing and why we're doing it and the, the permission to park our own egos and self-interests uh, in terms of how to, to, to manage that change. Well, the conversation changes when you have a patient at the table, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I, find that, I find the conversation really does change. And, and I think, you know, patients are, I think they're getting more confident in their voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's great. I think it's great that they're getting more confident in their voice. Um, you know, and you look even now, you know, for, you know, we're talking about in, innovation and just how we, how we train medical staff, we're kind of coming back to that. But I was just thinking, you know, there's so many platforms out there, um, you know, just like me for patients, right. With peer support and how much of their, their well-being, their healing, their ability to cope with their chronic disease or, or whatever it is they have is predicated upon those relationships they have with these online communities. And I think that's also going to be a, a space to play in around the innovation is how does that fit into primary care? How does that fit into um, supporting patients or having them be just much more empowered and knowledgeable to be bringing what they know forward and having that conversation with their provider to say, well, this is what I understand about my chronic disease. Mm-hmm. This is where I would like to see um, it, it go or us go what my plan would be. And then that physician then being asked, and what is your thought or that nurse practitioner? And what do you think about that uh, from the patient? So I think it's going to be really exciting in the future to kind of um, to, to have them be much more of a, a stand, a stand beside partner than they ever have been before, if not driving their care. Yeah, it certainly it puts a whole new spin on community care. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for so, sure. You know, yeah. a community that cares. Um, so that's been it's been a, a, a great honor and, and a really interesting conversation to have to, with you today, Jacqueline. Uh, I, I hopefully maybe we can chat again another six months or so and see where you've come on the journey in terms of the the work that you're doing in terms of the innovate and, and what you've learned and what you've done since then. But thank you very much for your time here today. And I, I know I've, I've really appreciated this and learned a lot from you. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you for the opportunity. We kind of, we talked about a lot of different things, but I, I think we're, we're on a really exciting path going forward. So um, I was glad to have the conversation with you today and then hopefully we can do that again sometime for sure. Perfect. Thanks again. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The HQ, and I'm Dale Sherbeck, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.